From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We're close enough to a coronavirus vaccine that officials are trying to figure out who will get it first and, yes, last, and how they'd get it. It's something we'll talk about with Governor Jared Polis, who was recently diagnosed with COVID-19. Plus, how quickly financial assistance will roll out from that special session of the state legislature. Later, the purplish team breaks down that session, how the politics of masks came into play. In no way was I trying to demean or disregard the uh, severity of COVID. That wasn't even what I was talking about, you know, because I fully respect how people feel. Also today, a palate cleanser from politics. We take you to Santa School, where you learn to ho-ho-ho and respond to wishes from kids that might be impossible to fulfill. Thank you to everyone who made a gift yesterday to support Colorado Public Radio on Giving Tuesday. On a day of global giving, you helped make an impact right here at home. This year, in-depth, fact-based news coverage and access to soul-filling music on CPR has been a lifeline for many of us. You make it possible through your support. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hospitalizations for COVID-19 have been steadily climbing in Colorado to their highest numbers of the pandemic. Deaths from the virus are averaging more than 200 a week here for the first time since April. Meanwhile, lawmakers met this week in special session to help Coloradans who need financial life support. These are topics we'll broach with Colorado's Governor Jared Polis. We'll also talk about how vaccines will roll out in the state. Governor, welcome back. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You checked in with us last weekend, just after your COVID-19 diagnosis. And at the time, you told us you and the first gentleman were asymptomatic. Uh, Has that changed? I think we're uh, hopefully mostly through the woods. Um, You know, I think we had, uh, you know, mild symptoms. I mean, I had trouble sleeping and uh, Marlon had headaches for a couple of days, but I, I think we're through it. I mean, this is such a weird virus, Ryan. Um, you know, it can it can put you on death's doorstep. And and I and I had a friend that that caught it, was hospitalized two days later, on a vent a day later, and 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 died two days after that. And and other people have no symptoms or mild symptoms. So the the odds were with us. You know, I mean, for people that are in their 40s, um, you know, it's about a five percent, four to five percent hospitalization. Uh, but that's that's still pretty scary. You can be perfectly healthy, and then boom, one in 20 people are hospitalized a week later. But so far, I could report that it looks like Marlon and I are in the 95 percent having those mild symptoms. When you tested positive, Governor, did you enter that into the smartphone contact tracing app? I did, yeah. So uh, I, uh, if anybody was exposed to my phone without an ID, they would get the, uh, the the idea. And I encourage everybody to turn on their smartphone identifications. It's under settings uh, and notifications, and you can very simply exposure notifications. Just simply turn that on, and uh, I, I got a code that I entered to, to to activate that when I was diagnosed. And you remain in quarantine. Are we going to see any counties move? to purple status, the strictest phase of the state's dial, the equivalent of a local stay-at-home order anytime soon? Well, I sure hope not, Ryan. Um, What that is designed to do is really make sure that we do not overwhelm 
our hospitals, um, which means that there is that there would no longer be a bed, not just for COVID, but a heart attack, a stroke, appendicitis, whatever you need. Uh, we are not out of room right now, but it is very strange, very strange. Some systems more than others, some parts of our state more than others. Uh, we've been working with the hospitals uh, around additional capacity. They, they have additional capacity since March, thank goodness, to serve people. Uh, we also have a little bit of room with the alternative care sites, which we monitor the information in real time, and we stand by ready to trigger if needed. Okay, so uh, no county is imminently going to purple, and uh, it doesn't sound like those alternative care sites, which range uh, from you know the convention center to other sites across the state, uh, those are on standby, but you don't anticipate those opening uh, immediately? That would be before, uh, you know, any type of um, purple or anything like that. So uh, the, the two that would be first would be Westminster and Pueblo. There's two smaller sites. Uh, and we, we monitor the, you know, the, the hospitalizations really daily, even, even hourly, uh, to see if that's needed. And right now, I think what the biggest threat is, and we simply don't know yet, Ryan, is what people did over Thanksgiving. And will that lead to another surge that would necessitate the activation of those sites? Will the state's guidance, speaking of Thanksgiving, uh, will the state's guidance for the December holidays mirror what you said around Turkey Day? We're going to learn a lot from Thanksgiving. So we're really, really frankly, starting today, actually, we should see the first um, test results and and cases. I hope, I hope, Brian, that uh, people avoided uh, mixing households over Thanksgiving, especially uh, if they forewent seeing their elderly relatives. We'll really see over the next week exactly what that looks like, and that'll help inform uh, the Christmas guidance for folks. Okay, and you expect to see the early signs of that today, uh, the tale of Thanksgiving. Starting today, uh-huh. yeah. We'll start, we'll start seeing some of the very first cases from people's Thanksgivings today, but I would I would say let's give it you know three to five days to really form any conclusions on what Thanksgiving looked like. What's, what's most important for folks to realize is this is just the most prevalent in the entire country that coronavirus has ever been. So if you've ever worn a mask, wear one now and wear it properly, right? We all, it, it, it's not a decoration to adorn yourself. It's a, it's a, it's a tool. It's clothing, just like you wear your shoes properly, uh, wear your mask properly, uh, avoid socializing with people outside of your household and, and try to stay six feet away whenever possible. And that was very similar to the Thanksgiving guidance. You know, as people traveled for Thanksgiving, there were anecdotes, Governor, from travelers at DIA of crowding, a lack of social distancing. Is Denver International Airport safe? Well, uh, you know, is it, it's reasonably safe if you take the precautions you need to if you have to travel. So um, I believe what I saw was that Thanksgiving traffic was about uh, half, a little bit less than half of what it normally was. I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but I, I read an article. So that means that, of course, it wasn't what it usually is. But that's still a heck of a lot of people, Ryan. So uh, just like in any crowd, I mean, travel is not inherently different than you know, the grocery store or work, um, wear a mask, uh, avoid uh, others and, and keep a distance. I think the airlines have been very responsible uh, with actually what occurs on the planes. Um, you know, what, what occurs at DIA from the pictures I've seen and the anecdotes does seem a little bit more worrisome. So if you are going to DIA and are traveling, you know, just get in, get out, wear your mask, wear the highest quality mask you have. If you have surgical, if you have K95, that's a good time to wear it. They're far more effective than just cloth. 
Late last month, Metro mayors signed a letter to your administration dealing um, with their concerns over poor communication from the state, a lack of coordination when it comes to COVID restrictions. Some of these Metro mayors told our investigative reporter, Ben Marcus, that they were tired of being surprised, Governor. How are we, what, nine months into a pandemic and still seeing these fundamental issues? Well, we had a good Zoom call with the mayors. Uh, I think it was yesterday, the day before. Uh, I'm tired of being surprised, too. I'm, I'm sure you are as well, Ryan. Um, none of us want to be surprised by cases going up. But the truth is, we are going to look at the actual data in, in real time. And, and that sometimes means adjusting course. Uh, not fun for us. I'm sure it's not fun for mayors. It's not fun for residents. But, uh, of course, we're not going to bake in something that is inflexible. Uh, we're going to look at real-time data. And, yes, the real-time data surprises us. I think it's just really just tragic how there's been this national surge over the last month or two. Uh, we were able to successfully tamper down the small summer surge. It was in July. We had a very good August and September, low rates. But then, boom, nationally and particularly in the middle of our country, in the upper Midwest, and we're on the periphery of that, uh, enormous spikes in cases just over the last month and a half. And so you think surprises are baked in to the process. Do I hear you telling Metro mayors? Well, I'd, much rather there's, I'd much rather there's no more, there's no surprises, Ryan. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously, who wouldn't? I'd rather that, you know, cases are stable and down and there's no surprises. And, you know, we're not surprised and mayors aren't surprised and businesses aren't surprised. I mean, that would be a wonderful thing if there are no more surprises. The special session of the state legislature, which you called, uh, ended in the middle of the week and committed $342 million to COVID relief. When will we start to see that aid roll out? Like, who benefits first, earliest? I'm so proud of the uh, Democrats and Republicans in our state legislature really coming together in Colorado's time of need with the resources we have. And, and we know that we don't have the same ability the federal government does, and we can get into later what the federal government should be doing, has a moral urgency to do. Uh, right now, um, some of this is already in people's hands. Uh, that's the $375 that predates the special session. It went out to everybody who experienced, almost everybody who experienced unemployment during this crisis, one-time payment. People didn't have to do anything. A lot of your listeners should have it in their accounts already. If they haven't, it should be there in the next few days if they're among the over 400,000 people who are eligible. The other thing to help restaurants, and we all sympathize with our neighborhood uh, restaurants, institutions that are not just an important part of our economy, uh, wages for workers, but also culturally important, uh, they are able to keep up to $2,000 of the sales tax revenue they actually already collected last month. So it's already in their bank account. They held it in custody for the state. They would have had to pay the state uh, in, in next week, and it is forgiven. They're able to keep that up to $2,000, as well as up to $2,000 a month going forward from sales tax revenue. There are others that roll on over the next few weeks and months, like rental assistance for people, uh, electricity bill assistance so people don't uh, lose their, their their light and their, their heat in the middle of winter, uh, help for child care. So those are all in the coming weeks. How will that affect next year's budget, particularly the sales tax stuff? These are all budgeted for as one-time expenditures, which they are. We, uh, we identify them as necessary items for stimulus in an approximately $1.2 billion stimulus package. 
that we presented in our budget. Now, this is about $340 million, I think, on, on, on the bulk of the stimulus, uh, rightly so. The Joint Budget Committee the legislature uh, would like to see subsequent forecasts to make sure that that additional one-time stimulus money is there and then figure out the best way to allocate that. But I also want to point out that this Whatever the state can do doesn't go nearly far enough to help our small businesses. It's not as big or even close to as big as PPP, as the direct payments people got, as unemployment insurance, all these things that we really rely on Democrats and Republicans in Washington to get together and do. That sounds like a call to action, Governor Polis, to Congress. Oh, it's urgent. I've just been so pleased that hopefully in the last few days there's been a little movement, but they need to get it done. I hope that Republicans and Democrats in Congress looked to Colorado as a model, to our legislature as a model. Did everybody get exactly what they wanted? Of course not. But fundamentally, Democrats and Republicans worked together, got $340 million out the door. Uh, we Look, unemployment expires for a lot of people. It has expired for some. It expires for some in, in, two, in three weeks, three weeks. So we need the federal government to continue that. We need some help for the businesses that are affected, whether it's another paycheck protection program or whether it's directed help for the businesses that are most impacted. Uh, we in Colorado have provided this bridge, thanks to the good graces of the legislature, help for restaurants, bars, individuals, renters. But it is simply a bridge, and we need the federal government to come through to help reduce the severity and duration of the recession. I want to talk about the rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine, or several, uh, because, of course, we know that there are several in the works. Lots of questions from our audience about this, Governor. Based on a plan Colorado submitted to the CDC, healthcare workers, first responders, nursing home residents will be first in line. Do you envision having a vaccine czar who would oversee the rollout? Uh, Well, first of all, thank goodness for the triumph of modern science, Ryan. We are only hopefully a week away from the first highly effective vaccine arriving in our state. And I would encourage anybody just to look at the data on the efficacy of this vaccine, Uh, 90%, 94%, there's two of them. And there's additional evidence. This is not enough to be conclusive yet that even those who contract it get mild cases if you've been vaccinated. And that's nothing unusual. That happens with the flu vaccine, too. So very effective. It will end the pandemic coming next week. We're excited. Double down, wear masks, avoid others. We're almost there, Ryan. We're almost there. Um, And and yes, um, those very uh, first doses will be available for the people who work in COVID wards and and, uh, are exposed to people every day. And then, of course, our, our most vulnerable population. Uh, within a week, is that is that the which which vaccine is that? Is that the Pfizer, Moderna? What is it? The, the Pfizer is the first one that we expect, uh, followed within a few weeks by the Moderna vaccine. And these are both two dose vaccines. Uh, there might be uh, some protection conferred with the first dose, but that is not documented. They can, uh, and this is very important that people know it's not like they can get the shot and then go out. You get one shot. Thirty days later, you get another, and then two weeks later, you are fully um, or 94 percent immune. So that is about 45 days from the first shot. Um, It's possible there is some immunity that occurs earlier. Um, You asked about sort of a czar. We we are involving the National Guard command structure. Uh, We're involving our emergency command center, regional representatives, um, uh, Rick Palacio from the governor's office. So we have a uh, emergency sort of team that is that is overseeing this to make sure that it's in people's arms as quickly as possible and done in a safe way. I'd like to quote from Dr. Brittany Monet James of the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine and the University of Col- uh, in Illinois College of Medicine. She wrote uh, on Twitter, 
Many black people will refuse to take this COVID vaccine because most of us don't trust that white people or the government mean us any good. She says vaccine messaging has to come from other black people and not just doctors, but church leaders, for example. In September, you let the COVID-19 health equity response team sunset. Will that hurt vaccine rollout in communities of color? I agree with that that doctor. I haven't read her words, um, but absolutely, we are engaging community leaders in communities of color to model and talk about the need for the vaccination. So we fully expect that that will involve faith leaders, community leaders, uh, elected leaders, and others. Uh, really, and I hope I hope that her prediction is wrong when she says sort of flat out that. Uh, black people won't get it. Maybe, you know, there are many that are eager to get it, of course, as well. Uh, But I think modeling the behavior uh, from within the community, having role models that show that, yes, this is science, folks. This is not white man science or rich man science. It is science, the integrity of the scientific process that Pfizer and Moderna have followed, tens of thousands of people who tested it, including people of color, people of different ages, all demonstrating that this will save lives and end the pandemic. Was it a mistake to sunset that health equity response team? Oh, well, they issued their recommendations to us, which we have worked on implementing. And uh, we have some that we've implemented and others that we're in the process of implementing. Uh, With regard to the vaccine, the important thing is having those trusted community voices in each community, and by the way, it's not just it's the communities of color, but also in rural communities and communities that might have different political persuasions. Very important for role models to step up and show the importance of ending the pandemic by getting inoculated. I'd like to focus on vaccinating people who are incarcerated. Katie Blakey has this question. You've said that incarcerated people will be last to get the COVID vaccine. You later clarified that vulnerable people who are incarcerated will get vaccinated at the same time as other vulnerable people. Since people in prisons, vulnerable or not, cannot physically distance and don't have the same access to hygiene practices that non-incarcerated people do, shouldn't they all be early to get vaccinated, at risk or not, especially considering most of Colorado's largest outbreaks have been at prisons? Thanks. How do you respond and, and really help us understand your position here? Yeah, well, of course, we you know respect the, the dignity of, of of every human life, um, and and, uh, and and really, I think where you know it becomes difficult is government shouldn't be making these normative judgments, which we're avoiding making generally by focusing on the most vulnerable. So, as I've said, nobody uh, will be denied a vaccination simply because they are in prison or incarcerated, and so too, nobody will be given one preferentially because they're incarcerated. It'll be done based on who is at risk, um, the elderly at risk, people with pre-existing conditions, um, whether they're in nursing homes, whether they're living in their own home, whether they're incarcerated. Uh, It's really critical to end the pandemic, prevent the overrun of our hospitals, to focus on providing immunity for those who have much higher hospitalization risks. And just to put this in perspective, Ryan, uh, people in their 70s and 80s have as much as a one in four chance of being hospitalized when they contract COVID. People my age, I think I can include you in that, Ryan, you're about my age, uh, have about a one in 20 chance uh, of being hospitalized. People in their 20s uh, have as little as a one in 100 chance of being hospitalized. And then, of course, kids, even less than that. So if we're focused on not avoid, not overwhelming our hospitals, 
we really need to focus on who would most likely not only need to be hospitalized, but frankly, who could also be at risk of a greater risk of death. But we know that cases have been rampant in Colorado's prisons. We know that social distancing, as Katie Blakey has reflected there, is difficult. And it seemed that you were contradicting some of your, your own administration's guidance when you said that there's no way that prisoners are going to get this before members of a vulnerable population, uh, because actually the framework that the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment published put those who are incarcerated uh, just behind critical workforce and highest risk individuals just because of their vulnerability. So which is it? Yeah, you'll see that we will align with the CDC and science uh, in Colorado to prioritize protecting the most vulnerable uh, I think that very likely every state will, but there's really just uh, work that came from CDC in the last week that uh, will be a part of our plan, which will be our prioritization plan, which will be filed with CDC. I expect uh, either today or Monday, really in the next few days, just to add the vaccine. And it'll reflect the very best science to save lives and the pandemic. So did you misspeak when you said there's no way prisoners are going to get this before members of a vulnerable population? Well, I think what I also said in that same quote, Ryan, is that if there are prisoners, or it might not have been the same quote, but it was quoted in the same article, that of course prisoners who are vulnerable will will not be denied it simply because they're prisoners. They'll get it just like other members of vulnerable populations. Goal is save lives, prevent the hospitals from being overrun. There are people that are 72 in prison, and there's a heck of a lot more people that are 72 that are not in prison, but they are at much greater risk of this virus. And of course, they will be prioritized for immunization. So just to be very clear, you're saying that the prioritization will be based on their general vulnerability, not whether they are incarcerated or not. No one will be discriminated against simply because they are in custody or in a prison. Uh, If you take up a hospital bed, we value your life. Uh, Really, frankly, the the life of, of every Coloradan is our concern in making sure that we adhere to the CDC guidance, the science-based guidance, and prioritize those who are most vulnerable for immediate protection. Do you agree that those who cannot physically distance in a prison setting are necessarily more vulnerable? That's really one question that a lot of our listeners uh, through Twitter were curious to have you reflect on. Well, it's wherever you live, if you are 25 years old, you have a roughly one in 100 chance of being hospitalized. If you're 72 years old, you have a one in four chance of being hospitalized. Now, you can also factor in pre-existing conditions of people of different ages. But what people sometimes don't recognize, right, is age itself, even without any pre-existing condition, has a totally different trajectory on this virus. That's why my parents, who are 76, have been staying at home. The only time my mom has gone out is to the dentist for for work she needed to do. We haven't even been able to see them in nine months because we didn't want to put them at risk because they, you know, take two people, one in four chance of hospitalization. That means there's a 50-50 chance that my parents get it, one of them is going to wind up in the hospital. And so very different risk criteria for people in their 20s and 30s. 40s and 50s, where, as I said, it's about 5% or 1 in 20. And then, of course, people in their 70s and 80s. All right, Governor, thanks so much. That's all the time we have. I appreciate your time and uh, continued good health uh, in light of the diagnosis for you and the first gentleman and your family. Thank you for all of the kind thoughts that have come in on social media and email, wishing us a speedy recovery. And I want to wish everybody in Colorado 
who has COVID a speedy recovery and who has a loved one who has struggling with COVID a speedy recovery. This is CPR News. Sign up for The Lookout from CPR News, a daily dose of news from our newsroom into your inbox. It's a newsletter full of what every Colorado needs to know to start the day. Issues and reporting from and about every corner of Colorado. Top stories, important conversations, and reports from our reporters, as well as other trusted sources. Plus, plenty of reminders of what makes Colorado colorful. Get the lookout in your email inbox every weekday. Sign up at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just before the break, we heard from Governor Polis about this special session and what's left to do. Now, perspective from CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. Here are public affairs reporters Ben to Berkland and Andrew Kenny. So what was even more controversial, interestingly enough, than any individual policy was probably the way that the lawmakers were actually behaving and the questions of public health measures, stuff like mask wearing, testing. And we we saw a little bit of a divide over that and some, some real drama inside the building. I mean, that's absolutely right. There was broad bipartisan support for these funding measures. But I think these sharp divisions over COVID-19 safety precautions um, you know, we're, we're vastly, you know, this vast schism. And I think it's representative of the country as a whole. There's mm-hmm. deep, deep disagreements on the pandemic, how to move forward, how to keep yourself safe. And so we saw, you know, we did see a lot of lawmakers wear masks. They're recommended, but not required for legislators on mm-hmm. the chamber floors and in the building. And then there was also rapid COVID-19 testing that's required for staff but not required, but recommended for lawmakers. Hmm. So uh, we only have one physician in the legislature. That's Democratic Representative Yadira Caraveo. She's a pediatrician. And she told me right after the session wrapped that she was disappointed when she saw many of her colleagues, and this happened especially in the House, not wearing masks. Even even at our peak, um, people are still not taking it seriously um, and in a very, very public manner, um, um, still being partisan um, about something that should be scientific fact. Um, And I'm sure that that's going to happen around the vaccines as well. Um, And so um, I think we're going to be living with coronavirus for a very long time, unfortunately, because of this division. Yeah. So she was on the House floor observing this, uh, watching as her colleagues did or didn't wear masks. And people on Twitter also got a, a little perspective into this conflict when one Democratic representative shared a picture of a Republican representative, Larry Liston, who was on the House floor and, as a joke, I guess, put a mask over the top of his head and it looked like a little blue bonnet. Right. And and actually, I I talked to him and he said, you know, he says it was not a joke and he wasn't intending it that way at all. He said, in fact, he just couldn't speak to his colleague clearly with the mask on. Keep in mind, each desk on the House floor and in the Senate is surrounded by this clear plexiglass. And that was put in place to try to keep it safer. And he he said he wasn't joking. You know, maybe in retrospect, if I put it in my lap, but I didn't, I put it on my head. Um, And uh, in no way was I trying to demean or... uh, uh, disregard the uh, severity of COVID. That wasn't even what I was talking about, uh, you know, because I fully respect how people feel. Talking to Liston, he was upset that a colleague took a picture of him and said he was mocking something 
and didn't come talk to him first because there is this unwritten rule that you don't take pictures of colleagues. They're sometimes on the floor till one or two in the morning and you could easily get a picture that makes it seem like someone's not doing their job or tired when it's really just a snapshot. Now, a lot of Democrats feel differently about Liston's behavior. This is happening in a building that is kind of obsessed with decorum. You know, there's all kinds of rules about what you can wear, when you need to wear a coat, where you can sit, where you can be. So I think that we're seeing some real kind of societal divisions over mask wearing and basic public health protocols surface in these kind of debates and little spats between the lawmakers on the floor. And, you know, to Representative Kathy Kipp, who was the one who posted this viral photo of of Liston with the mask on his head, she said that it was almost indecent that so many Republican lawmakers were not willing to abide by the simple request to wear a mask. And Andy, adding to that point, um, we saw Democrats doing selfies with their masks and and wearing wristbands that show they've taken COVID tests. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not as many Republicans did that, but I I don't want to make it seem like None of the Republicans were wearing masks. A lot of them were wearing masks. A handful of them got the COVID-19 tests. But here's one little example that really stood out to me. I talked to a Democratic senator who said she was treating this session as um, that she would be in contact with COVID. So she's home now and her husband moved in with his mom for two weeks. So she's you know living alone away from her husband after this session. On the opposite end, I talked to a Republican who's not going to wear a mask, didn't wear one in the building, isn't planning to, Hmm. and said that now that the treatments for COVID-19 are better, he will be okay with, and in some sense, actually hopes he does get coronavirus so he can build up immunity. And of course, that would not be the advice of your mainstream doctors. The, you know, the mainstream medical community is going to tell you to avoid contact with covid Try not to stick around the state capitol building for any longer than you need to and wear a mask while you're in it. But I wonder what this will look like for the next session. You know, they have to be back in this building in just a month and they have to get along. Right. And I mean, this was basically two and a half days. And one thing about this session, when I was walking around the building, it was still desolate because none of the lobbyists were there. As you know, Andy, that building is you know hundreds of lobbyists. Yeah. These bills weren't controversial and they were already kind of done ahead of time for the most part. In a session, there's hundreds of bills. I've talked to lobbyists. They're going to be in the Capitol. You know, depending upon if there's a huge uptick in cases, you know, Caraveo says she does not think it's going to be safe for so many people to be in that building. We'll just see if, you know, if they are going to have the four-month session as planned. That's right. So they will be back in January And they would be expected normally to be in session for four months due to the normal work of the state legislature passing a budget, passing all these laws. But they do have the option now to potentially break that up into, you know, come in for a week, come back later, try to get a handle on the outbreak, depending on where it is. So they may have to embrace some alternative lawmaking strategies when they come back to the building next year. Yeah, that's right. The court ruled that under this extraordinary pandemic, they had the ability to not have the 120 days be consecutive. And so that was a significant decision. And also a lot more lawmakers are working remotely and the legislature expanded remote testimonies so people can testify on bills from their own home by logging into their computer. That wasn't the case before, but I don't think we're going to see, and I haven't heard this from anyone, that we would see a fully remote session like uh, some other states have done. There's not the political support for that Hmm. from members of either party. 
Yeah, it'll be uh, something to watch. They managed to keep it together for two and a half days. Both their their tempers and hopefully the coronavirus could be a different story when they have a lot more work to do. So COVID questions aside, on the other hand, the actual policymaking went pretty smoothly, right? Polis set these priorities coming in about what he wanted to see funded and done. We knew pretty well what the bills were going to be a week before the special session started. And for the most part, lawmakers in both parties rolled along with them. Yeah, I think that's right. There was there was a lot of consensus that if the state could do something, the state should do something. And they had this additional money because state income tax revenue was higher than they had projected. And so this extra money normally would have gone into a state savings account. So that, you know, they had this money and they really wanted to to target businesses that have been really hit by capacity restrictions. So, you know, restaurants and then other people who are dealing with, you know, rental assistance, public health, utilities. And so they did keep to that. You know, you can call the session on on certain topics and you really have to to stay to what those topics are. I'm pretty sure it's impossible legally to pass a bill faster than they actually did. You need it right. on three separate days. Yeah. And they did it so fast that there was a typo in one of the 10 bills that they passed. Oh, really? Uh-huh. The word available was spelled wrong. <laughs> Transfer to make money available <laughs> for COVID-19, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it, it couldn't get fixed. It showed up again and again. So that was the legislature working in a way that you may never really see. And they said that it was important to do that quickly, by the way, because we're not necessarily seeing a federal stimulus package just yet. We're not mm-hmm. getting a ton of backup. And this next wave is hitting pretty hard. But that's not to say that there wasn't any debate about these laws. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's some discomfort. We heard from Republicans that the package of bills and these proposals pick winners and losers in the business community and in other areas of society and leaves out entire industries and that that shouldn't be the role of the government right now. And I heard across the political spectrum, you know, this is a drop in the bucket. And lawmakers may have different perspectives on how much a federal stimulus package should be and where that should be distributed and all of that. Yeah. But I don't I don't think anyone sees this as this cure-all for what's happening right now. Well, the pushback to that from Polis and, and the Democrats and probably even some of the Republican leaders was that they did have to kind of pick and choose. Mm-hmm. The state government's not the federal government. They don't have billions upon billions of dollars to to spend. And you can see in the priorities that it is arguably people and businesses and organizations that were directly affected. It's the restaurants that can't get all the way open. It's 50 or $60 million to help people pay housing bills that they may not be able to pay in the next couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the message was get us through this COVID winter. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, one thing, you know, speaking of the governor, we we continued to hear Republicans say that you know, they're concerned about his use of executive power over this many months. You know, we've mm. seen in this declared state of emergency, he has the ability to do a lot of things he can't do when we're not in this declared state of emergency. And so I, I don't see that changing, but those kind of powers just keep getting extended. And uh, some Republicans are wondering how long that that that'll be the case. Yeah, that was that was one of the subjects that Republicans like Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert did raise was trying to get some traction on the idea that they want to rein in Polis. But it's been kind of a, a, a careful dance that they're doing, because at least, you know, in the Senate, the, the more moderate Republicans don't want to go totally to war with 
pull mm-hmm. us. On the other hand, you know, there was some moments of fairly loaded rhetoric that we heard, especially in the house. Um, one that comes to mind that I watched live over YouTube, you know, was the question of whether funding should go to counties that are not obeying the public health orders. This is one of the most interesting questions to come up. Yeah, I think I think that was fascinating that, you know, Democrats added this amendment to say if money is flowing through counties to help businesses, counties have to try to be implementing public health safeguards. And this was part of the small business grant bill that's going to send, you know, tens of millions of dollars out to restaurants and others. That was probably one of the most heated policy questions of this entire thing. And it led to this moment where Representative Dave Williams, he's a Republican out of Colorado Springs, where he stood up at the dais and and said, essentially, that people should disobey the government. Hmm. I think we've come to a point where we are uh, beginning to see the bubbling of soft tyranny. And this bill, I am afraid, will encourage that, the tyranny part of it. And so, yeah, I do believe that there should be more counties and more municipalities and more businesses that do engage in civil disobedience and do tell the governor, do tell CDPHE and the other experts that, you know what, this isn't working for me. I'm going to continue to serve the customers in the way that they should be served because it's their livelihood that's on the line here. I I mean, I think you you have perspectives like Williams and then other people are pushing Polis to issue a statewide stay-at-home order, which he's reluctant to do. So, you know, Polis has been, uh, I, I think we've heard from him, trying to support businesses trying to, to keep the state, you know, keep things contained, but but not going too far. Um, and so he's he's getting criticism and, and I think support from all sides, too. I mean, I've, I've heard both. I have heard Republicans say they were glad he called this special session and include the legislature and other Republicans have said they're glad he hasn't issued mm-hmm. another stay-at-home order. So there's just so many things to balance at this moment in time. Yeah. So speaking of balancing, what ultimately happened with that question of whether to send money to the rebellious counties was that they found something of a compromise or they kind of softened this policy where they weren't going to send the money. And they said that they would send the money to individual cities and they would even allow the money to go to businesses if they were just kind of near the city, even if the county itself is disobeying the public health orders. So that's a way of saying that if you're in Greeley or near Greeley, you can get the money because Greeley's in line with public health orders, even though the county of Weld is not. Hmm. So probably most businesses in Weld County would qualify for this. Exactly. There's not going to be that many in unincorporated Weld County a mile away from Greeley. So that was just such an interesting kind of thing they had to negotiate where Democrats were saying they didn't want to basically... Uh, send this money to help out businesses in, in counties that were going against the grain. And they, they said that other businesses that are actually following the public health orders need it more. Republicans were saying, you're you're punishing us, you're coercing us. And just the collision of these health orders and the money they're sending out turned into a whole complicated question. CPR's Andrew, Kenny, and Benta Berkland, with an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR, downloaded from Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We learned from a leading health official that Santa Claus is immune to coronavirus, and so when he stops by, your family is safe. 
And according to our next guest, Santa actually needs helpers beyond his elves, other Kris Kringles who tend to things beyond the North Pole. Denver photographer Ron Cooper's debut book is called We Are Santa. It profiles 50 different St. Nicks from all over the country. Ron, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning, Ryan. So 50 Santas in this book, can you say if any of them are the actual big guy? Well, he is in the book, but I'm not at liberty to tell you which one he is. (laughs) You know, each of these 50 has a unique look. There's a pirate Santa, a military camouflage Santa, beach vacation Santa. Uh, We also get to see how they look in non-Santa attire. Why did you want to show that juxtaposition? Well, I've always been interested in people who uh, have unique passions and who really follow those passions. And these men who portray Santa Claus are truly passionate about what they do. And I had an interest in understanding whether when they showed up at the studio in street clothes, they looked like Santa or not. And so the the concept here was to have them. And in in fact, I photographed over 100 Santas around the country, Ryan, and I asked them to come to the studio in street clothes, much as you would see them at Starbucks or at a bank or in a grocery store, and to bring with them their Santa suit. And so I first photographed them in a black and white portrait uh, in their regular everyday selves, non-Santa, before Santa look. And then I asked them to change into their favorite Santa suit. And by the way, many of them brought two or three different Santa suits uh, to our photo shoot. And it was fascinating because as I met these people, I knew they were Santa. And of course you can see the twinkle in the eye, the full beard, the big belly. Many of these gentlemen (laughs) look like Santa, whether they're wearing red and uh, dressed as Santa or not. Now you said a gentleman, but I want to point out uh, someone like Susan Mesco of Lafayette, Colorado, who is also Santa. And uh, she noticed when she would see male Santas on the job, uh, quoting from your book, that these Santas were cranky. The children were crying. The moms were upset. It was just horrid. I thought there had to be a better way. So she she took on the Santa mantle. It's not just men. No, it isn't. She is Mrs. Claus. But what makes Susan genuinely unique is that Uh, Some 30 plus years ago, uh, she started a company uh, and is one of the largest Santa Claus trainers uh, and educators in the country and also one of the largest agents for Santa Claus in the country. In fact, it was Susan uh, who was able to introduce me to many of these Santas around the country. Yeah, she's the founder of the professional Santa Claus School. I love that Santas have agents. That's just hilarious. Uh, And many of the Santas in your book attended, you know, a school like this, including Santa K.J. Braithwaite in Colorado Springs. He went to Santa School in Denver. Has an interesting story about what he did after graduation. What's that story? Well, he... uh... He is a Santa through and through. And in the book, uh, we do a little profile of, of him. And one of the interesting aspects uh, of his background is that uh, he had a all Santa Claus uh, wedding. Uh, in fact, he and his <laughs> wife uh, got their marriage license at a courthouse in 2015, the day before he attended uh, Susan's professional Santa Claus school. 
and then they had an all Santa Claus ceremony and wedding. So this is a guy who embodies Santa in every aspect of his life. At these schools, Santa's not only learn grooming techniques and, you know, the right kind of ho-ho-ho, but they also learn something called the third list. What is the third list? Well, as you, as you can imagine, uh, Santas receive a tremendous amount of questions from children, and a lot of them are very routine. Uh, their requests for a particular toy, or uh, did they enjoy the cookies that we left for you? But Santas also receive some very serious questions and requests from children uh, that are, in fact, very difficult for Santas uh, to either meet or respond to. Questions yeah. like, can you make my parents get back together? Can you make my dad stop hitting my mom? Can you cure my grandmother's cancer? Oh. And one of the things that uh, is taught in Santa school is how to respond to these difficult questions because Santa never wants to make a promise that cannot be kept. And in many of these instances, these kinds of requests transcend what Santa himself can do. So they are especially focused on providing training so that Santas can, in fact, respond appropriately to these kinds of questions. Well, I think you point out that Santa, some of them, are mandatory reporters. It's, it's true that kids tell things to Santa that actually should be told to authorities. That's right. Uh, Santa James Knuckles of Decatur, Georgia, in your book, We Are Santa, Portraits and Profiles. My guest is Ron Cooper. Uh, James Knuckles um, talks about what it's like to be a black Santa. What stands out from your profile of him? Uh, well, Santa James is uh, one of the relatively few African-American Santas and he tells a number of stories about instances where kids, both African-American children and white children, challenge him. How can, how can you be Santa if, in fact, you're black? And uh, he is very philosophical in his approach to this. And he asks the kids uh, directly, um, what color is Santa? How do you know that? And I think that Historically, if you go back far enough, uh, there are certainly plenty of depictions of Santa as having dark skin, historically. And so Santa James uh, explains to children that uh, we don't know what color Santa Claus is, but what is really important about Santa is his spirit and his ability to convey and share the spirit of the season uh, and to embody those qualities that are important uh, compassion and charity and goodwill. And those qualities are uh, completely irrelevant to the color of one's skin, as he explains. Hmm. I understand that this project to profile Santas around the country, it came about because you started to run into Santas and Santa culture everywhere. You just like, couldn't escape it. It was, a, it was a funny set of uh, very serendipitous circumstances. I was in New Mexico several years ago photographing Civil War reenactors and cowboys. And at the end of that shoot, one of the subjects that I had photographed came up to me and said, hey, I have another character that I portray that I would love to show you. Do you have time for me to do that? And I agreed. He went away and came back about 15 minutes later in a gorgeous Western Santa Claus suit with a bolo tie. Turns out that he had a side gig as a professional Santa at a shopping mall in Albuquerque. And so I made his portrait <clears throat> and I filed that away. And just coincidentally, a few weeks later, I came across an article in a newspaper 
about the C.W. Howard Santa School, another Santa educational institution, this one in Midland, Michigan. <laughs> and it was the first one that I had learned of, and I, I read up on that. And then shortly thereafter, I became aware of a Santa convention that was being held in San Diego. And I thought, wow, this is certainly coincidental. All of this Santa Claus information coming at me. <laughs> and then again, in a stroke of coincidence, I learned that Susan Mesco right here in Colorado was one of the top Santa Claus trainers. Educators, right? Educators, exactly. And so I called her and she was gracious enough to get together with me. And she explained to me a little bit about the history of Santa Claus in the United States and the work that she did. And it was at that time that I thought, wow, I'd like to meet some of these gentlemen and make their portraits. And that's what led to this project. And in just the last minute or so, did documenting these Santas around the country change your relationship to Santa Claus? Did it make you more of a believer in the magic? It makes me a believer in the commitment they have to representing and embodying the character of Santa. Many of these uh, gentlemen are very dedicated to the spirit of the season. They are in this business of being Santa Claus for the right reasons. They love the children that they have a chance to meet with. They want to have a positive influence on them. They want to carry forward the history and the traditions of Santa Claus. They want to communicate goodwill and holiday spirit. And so meeting them and having a chance to photograph them was really quite inspiring. It's really a beautiful book, We Are Santa, Portraits and Profiles. Ron Cooper, thanks so much for talking with us. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Ryan. Photographer Ron Cooper lives in Denver. Indeed, his new book is We Are Santa. Proceeds benefit Children's Hospital Colorado. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Blixin' and blixin' and all his reindeers pullin' on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Here comes Santa ho, Claus. Ho, ho, ho! Right I don't think a Santa career is in my future. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. Here